What's up everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew Through Project, and this is six highlights from the Jew Through Project for 2022. Number six, the unspoken documentary in partnership with DLC Media. Number five, the Juneteenth documentary in partnership with Our Daily Bread. Number four, our Right Now Media series Through Eyes of Color. Number three, our Courageous Conversations curriculum. Number two, our Courageous Conversations Conference 2022. And number one, Problematic Passages featuring Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Joe Vitale. We've had an incredible year. I mean, God has done some amazing things that have caused growth and we have reached millions across the globe with your help. Help us continue the mission and the vision of the Jew3 Project at jew3project.org. We need your help to help people reimagine faith through apologetics. Every gift helps equip and help us to expand in 2023. Grace and peace. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project, and I'm so excited to have our dear friend, he might as well be a resident theologian uh, with with the Jew3 Project, but I don't, I can't afford him. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Esau McCauley, what's up, Esau? How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I finally made it to the Jew 3, back to the Jew 3 um, project. So thank you for having me. It's good to catch up. You got your new studio. Everything's yes. looking good. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we are, before we get into today's topic, we are continuing our series on uh, the Bible and why we should trust it. Uh, tell our audience for people who've been living under a rock and have maybe not seen a Jude 3 Project episode. It's so funny. If you Google, um, if you put Esau's name in uh, YouTube, you're going to see a whole bunch of Jude 3 videos. Yeah. Like many times. He's I don't even know Jude how many I've done. How many have I done? I don't know. I mean, we have Courageous Conversations, yeah. uh, podcasts. You did your I would, own I would, like I would lectures. probably guess I've done more Jew three than anyone else. But anyways, as far as who I am, my name's Esau Macaulay. I'm an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, a theologian in residence at Progressive Baptist Church um, in the South Side of Chicago, and a, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Written a couple of books. You can see them in the background. Um, Reading while black, Josie Johnson's hair and the Holy Spirit, and a book that I just released um, on Lent. And I got another book coming out. Um, in September called How, How Far to the Promised Land. Yes. When you first came on Jude 3, I think you were ABD, all yes. with dissertation. Uh, we talked about ways to research. And yep. then now you're like uh, the top New Testament professor in the U.S. So. I mean, I, I don't want the New Testament <laughs> hive to come out for me, so just let me live. I'm just over here at Wheaton trying to, trying, trying to stay in my lane and do the work that God's called me to do. So I let other people yes. talk about it. And we have this running joke between me, Justin Gibney, and you about me discovering Esau McCauley. So oh. it is... It is a, I didn't know. I didn't know I was worthy of being discovered. I'm just over. Like I said, I'm over here out of my business. I'm just writing my little stuff in my little corner. No, but I we're mean, so I, proud of you, Esau. You have you have done so much to help uh, us think through the New Testament. So you are an exceptional gift. So I just want to publicly say that I'm so proud of you, and I'm so thankful for the work that you do uh, to help not only the Black community but all Christians and skeptics think through the Bible better. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm going to receive that and say that anything that I did that is helpful, I want to I want to say it's, it's due to my mom who, who took me to that Black Baptist Church in Huntsville, Alabama, um, week in and week out. And for every deacon, mother, um, Sunday school teacher, and pastor who preached the gospel to me and, and taught me when I was a kid. And so I always feel like whenever I'm doing, I'm just representing 
like the black church in Northwest Huntsville. Dope, dope. I feel, I don't even know if I've been to Alabama yet. So you know, I need to go to been Alabama a just it's been a minute to since I've been honor there. you. <laughs> I was, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna shade my home my home city because um, I love them, but I have been invited to a lot of places, including Birmingham, Huntsville, and nobody in Huntsville has invited me to do anything. I guess I'm just I'm whack and I guess I'm lame in Huntsville. So maybe at some point I I'll get a chance to go back there myself and do some stuff. Yeah, I don't. So I was visiting eating my family's food. Yeah, I don't want to shade your city, but everybody can't be from the great place of Jacksonville, Florida, like me. Okay, so, congratulations, anything. man. Y'all, y'all want a little, <laughs> y'all, y'all want a little playoff game or something? The little Jaguars. Or right, well, congratulations, that was cute. You said you stayed in Jacksonville for a while. For a year, I actually went. I feel like I went to see. Did Tim, Tim Tebow ever play for Jacksonville for like thirty minutes? Uh, yeah, but not. I think he didn't. He didn't. No, I think he yeah, might be playing baseball or something. I remember okay. Tebow being floating around Jacksonville when I was there, but yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Well, we're going to get to the matter at hand as we continue our series on um, the Bible um, and the reliability of it. We've had great episodes um, so far, and I'm sure this will uh, be no different. Uh, talking about why black people should trust the Bible. Um yeah. Esau, tell our audience why someone that is African-American should trust the Bible. It's interesting. When we talk about trusting the Bible, the first question we got to ask is, what do we mean by trusting the Bible? And I actually think about when we say trust the Bible, we're actually trying to get at something beyond the scriptures, which is whether or not God has communicated to us faithfully through the scriptures. So our trust in the Bible isn't actually a trust in the Bible. It's a trust in the God who gave us these texts. In other words, we're trying to figure out as Christians, how can I get access to or understand or experience God in a way that can guide me through my life? And yes, it's true that you can experience God looking at the sunset and, you know, sitting by the beach and feeling these emotional experiences. And you can experience God in music when people sing songs and you're having this experience of the spirit. You can experience God in preaching. But the question is, can we trust that the book that we call um, the Bible is a reliable place to encounter God and God's will for our lives? Now, when, so on one, on one level, it's the question that um, any Christian is going to ask or any person going to ask, how can I find who God is? Mm-hmm. Now, why is this a particular question for black Christians or black people in general? It's because the Bible has been used against us. Mm-hmm. That's the real question, right? That is, there, there's kind of like two streams of interpretation uh, as relates to black people and, and, and the Bible. And one stream of interpretation has said the Bible justifies all the things that have happened to African-Americans throughout our history. Mm-hmm. From the Middle Passage, well, from the slave, from, from the capture, through the Middle Passage, through the auction block, through assault and abuse, um, during, through slavery itself, through um, the disenfranchisement of black voters, through Jim Crow. So in other words, the question is, like, if the Bible says all of this stuff is, is good— then I can't, I can't actually support it mm-hmm. if the Bible justifies it. Now, there's another stream of interpretation that says, no, all the things that have happened to African-Americans has not been through the Bible read properly, but the Bible read poorly. And so I want to I wanna argue that, and we can get into like why that's the case, but I want to argue that there is a strong claim to be made that African-Americans who have seen in the scriptures a, a, a God who stands on the side of the disinherited have been reading the Bible correctly. And so really that's the heart of it. Like, does the Bible justify what has happened to us? And that's a question that isn't new to our generation. It's a, it's a, it's a question that goes all the way back to the first time someone who was enslaved heard about Jesus. The question of whether or not I can trust this book is a central question. I can do more Bible, but that's kind of to set the table. Um, that's where I think the, the question first starts. Yeah, no, that's good. That's, that is a lot of what we get, the pushback we get from uh, skeptics and people who um, no longer feel like the Bible is a reliable and trustworthy source. And yeah. this is something, um, when you look at the Barner Trends in the Black Church um, survey, the the trajectory is black Christians, especially black young Christians, 
are are looking at the Bible and saying it's not reliable. And so when they compare data from, uh, I believe it was 10 years ago to now, it was down significantly from people who said they don't feel like the Bible is reliable. And so we see that people are trusting the word less and less. And it is for many of the reasons that you you listed um, already. So there's two things that we can start off with that is at least important to ask the question. Mm-hmm. We know that the slave trade did not begin because somebody read some Pauline passages and said, see, Paul supports slavery. Mm-hmm. The slave trade began in part, or was justified in part, through an anthropology that created a hierarchy where Europeans are on top and black people at the bottom. And the mm-hmm. idea was that because black people were inferior, Therefore, it's okay to mistreat them. Mm-hmm. And so the first question is, like the, the central question that you have to begin to ask is, does the Bible teach the inferiority? Does the Bible teach racial hierarchy? Mm-hmm. And the Bible teaches racial hierarchy, then black people got a reason to be mad, mm-hmm. right? They can toss it to the side. Um, and so so then let's, let's look at what the, what the text actually says. So we talk about um, one of the things that happens is that people will, will make these sweeping claims without any exegetical backup. So the Bible is white man's religion. Well, the, does the Bible get to speak to itself? Well, Genesis 1 says that we are all created in God's image. Right? The, Genesis 1 says that all of humanity is created in God's image, 126 to 128. And if we're all image bearers, we're all image, image bearers, then there is no basis for racial hierarchy. A racial hierarchy, then, is functionally idolatry. It is putting value in something that God himself doesn't value. So when you're saying, can I trust the Bible— the first question you're asking is, does the Bible teach me or teach the inferiority of one race over the other? The answer to that question is no. The second question is, does the Bible then teach like a chosen people, a people who have a special category that ex- that is separate from everyone else? And is that chosen people kind of white European Americans? Well, you can say in the Bible, you have God's chosen people who are the Jews. But even God's chosen people, the Jews and the Jewish people in the Old Testament, in the book, in Genesis chapter 12, the idea of God's chosen people was for those chosen people to be a blessing to everyone else. Mm-hmm. So God's cho- the status of being God's chosen people in, in the Old Testament was not so that they can be ontologically better than other people, but they, they were chosen as a vocation to serve the nations of the world. Mm-hmm. So even at the beginning of a chosen people, God says the purpose of this people is to bless all the other ethnicities of the world. Mm-hmm. So black people are included within that vision of the multi-ethnic blessing that's going to come to God's people. So at the very beginning of the Christian story or the Jewish and Christian story, you have we all share God's image. And God's plan from the beginning was to create a family of people from different ethnic groups who united in the worship of the one true God. So the very foundational myth of white supremacy that justifies the slave trade is countered by the scriptures. So if I'm a black person and I say, what does the Bible say about who and what I am? The Bible says that I bear God's image. And that I am worthy of dignity and respect. And that if I trust in Jesus, I'm an equal member of God's family alongside everybody else. So the first lie of white supremacy is countered by the scripture. The second question is, like, what kind of God do we serve? I I don't want to go too long on this, so stop me. What kind of God do we serve? Do we serve the kind of God who, who rejoices in the oppression of people? What is God like? Well, the, the foundational narrative that you see, once again, in the Old Testament is the Exodus narrative in which God sees an oppressed people and he removes them from slavery. So what, what is God like when you first meet him at the beginning of their story? He's the kind of God who sees the suffering peoples of the world and acts on their behalf. And you see that same depiction of God picked up in the law and in the prophets, where again and again and again, God sends prophets to people, and the prophets often speak about the economic exploitation of of the poor. And then we get to the New Testament, and you look at Jesus, you say, does Jesus pick up that tradition that we see in the Old Testament? Does Jesus pick up the tradition of valuing people? Did Jesus pick up the tradition of caring for the poor? Did Jesus pick up the, the, the tradition of an anthropology that says we're all equal? And the answer to that question is yes. 
And so as you look at the Bible and you say, as a black person, does God stand with the disinherited? I can make an argument that the answer to that question is yes. As a black person, does God value me as who I am? Um, the answer to that question is yes. And so I do think that in so much as we claim that the Bible justifies what happened to black people in this country, it's a lie. And it's a lie that it doesn't even take the lies of Greek, Hebrew, Latin, or German, or French to un uncover. You just need an English Bible, and you can see some of these passages there. Yeah, no, that's, that's super, super helpful. Um, when we get to what the, the issue always comes down to, and we've done a whole episode on this, I don't want yeah. to uh, labor this yeah. point, but slavery in the Bible. Yeah. It always comes back to to that. And you did a beautiful uh, job of handling that in Reading While Black. If you go yeah. to Problematic Passages, he's giving given a response to this. Uh, yeah. Is there anything on slavery in the Bible that you haven't said that you think would be helpful to our audience as they're specifically looking at this idea of a black person trusting this book? I think that I think that one of the things that we have to do, and I, I, I talk about, forgive me for using this analogy, but I think about the Bible as kind of like, yeah, I think of it as like music. And all the texts in the Bible are like different keys. And part of what it means to be a theologian, right, is to play the right key for the right amount of time or the right, the right chord so that it makes beautiful music. And if you just hit the wrong key at the wrong time, it distorts the song that is trying to be played. Mm -hmm. And I think that every, I think that it would be dishonest to say there aren't passages in the Old and New Testament that give us pause. Mm -hmm. it, they're, they're problems. You wouldn't, if you, you couldn't have problematic passages if there weren't passages that initially struck us as problematic. Mm -hmm. But the question that we have to raise is what role do those passages play in the music that is the scripture? The song that God is trying to play to us through these texts. And I want to say something like this to the Christian who's listening to this. You got to read the whole thing and ask yourself these questions. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. When God wanted to um, create a people, wanted to create a people, at the foundation of that story, at the foundation of that story, it's the story of liberation from slavery into freedom. And then when God begins to disciple those people, he says to them over and over again, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So the compassion that, that comes from oppression was supposed to inculcate in the people of God a sense of compassion. And so there is a tension. There's a tension, right, between the passages in the Bible that allow for slavery and the liberative narrative that goes throughout. And the question that you have to ask for yourself is, well, on what, what was God doing in that? And how did God want us to solve that tension? Did God want us to solve that tension by saying, you know what? The Exodus isn't fundamental. The prophets aren't fundamental. The laws that, 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 that point towards freedom aren't fundamental, but the problematic passages are. Mm -hmm. But historically, the black church have said, black Christians have said, no, I got uh, I, I got, for every problematic passage, I got 150 other passages. And so I'm not talking about ignoring difficult text. I'm saying there is, I think, a clear narrative that emerges in Scripture that reveals God's character, particularly in the person of Jesus. And in that narrative, I think that the, the, the testimony that comes across is a freedom. And so I want, I want to encourage us to to wrestle with that reality. And there's might be one other thing, and this is, and I don't want to say special pleading. It's really what I think. <clears throat> God gets into um, the messy world of historical reality. Like God doesn't sit above everything and, and just, and it's hope for the best. He comes down to a broken people and he points them towards a better way. And so what we have to do is to say, as I look at these texts and read them, at what place is God actually accommodating himself to the weaknesses and brokenness of humanity? In which ways is he pointing towards the better way? And I think that the, the trajectory of Scripture points towards freedom and liberation. Mm 
And, and and maybe I will say this too, and this is, and I put this in the book, but people didn't really pick up my challenge, Lisa. It's interesting to have a book for three years and people didn't read it. <laughs> and you know, yell at me about it. I made an assertion that black Christians, our ancestors, claim the slave masters were reading the Bible incorrectly. That was the claim that we made. We claim that them knuckleheads who was enslaving us were bad readers of the Bible and that we who saw God as the God of freedom were better readers of the Bible. And so now we who are their ancestors, we can look and say, were our ancestors right? Were our ancestors right when they said the people who, who oppressed us were bad readers of the Bible? Right, And if we say that, then there, there's a line of faith. What I feel like has happened in our generation is that we've become convinced that our oppressors were better Bible readers than the enslaved people back in the day. Mm. We've become convinced that the people who read the Bible in an oppressive manner are actually better exegetes of the text. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question is that's not true. It's not true. It's simply not the case that the way that those people read the Bible is actually how the Bible should be read. And that challenge isn't just, it isn't just black enslaved people who read it this way. You're talking about the entirety of the global South, right? We always talking about going back to Africa and finding our African roots. You go on over there and see what you find. A bunch of people yelling about Jesus. And so I'm not just talking about the collective testimony of black people in America across time. I'm talking about the collective testimony of African peoples as to the liberative power of the gospel across time and across culture. And don't even have me going to South, South America and get our Latina and Latino and Hispanic brothers and sisters who are going to tell you the exact same thing. So we're going to have to, have to at some point like settle in on this question. Is the white reading of scripture that was used to oppress us the best interpretation of the Bible? Or is the are the African-American readings and the African readings and the South American readings that have seen in this in this text a God who cares about the stepped on peoples of the world, good readers of the Bible? Mm-hmm. In other words, I really believe that we have to um decenter the European reception of the Bible in our analysis of whether or not it's dependent. And what tends to happen is people stream from one Eurocentric interpretation of the Bible to the other. So they don't like kind of conservative um, Eurocentric interpretations, and they just go and, 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 and get progressive Eurocentric interpretations of the Bible. And I want to say, no, there is a reading that runs right down the heart of the black church. It's in also Uganda, Nigeria, Rwanda. Go on over there and ask them, and they're going to tell you the exact same thing. And so I really want to say we sometimes allow our frustration with our Christian neighbors who failed us to send us hurling away from God. And I said this a long time ago, but I'll just keep saying it because I feel like there's one message God has given me to say is this. White supremacy has taken a lot from black people in America. It can't take it can't it can't take God from us too. It can't take the scriptures from us too. We've already lost too much. And like the very thing that might be a, a, a useful tool in our liberation is the very thing that people want to take from us. There's a reason, I'm sorry I'm going off. There's a reason why one of the first things they did, and you talked about this, what did they do to black people? They edited the Bible and they didn't teach us to read because they didn't want us to read it. Why? If they had such a strong argument, why did they just say, here, take this whole book, read it from cover to cover, and then come back to the field tomorrow? <laughs> they didn't do that, right? They took those things from us because they knew that if we read these texts for ourselves, we'd be difficult to control. Yeah. Yeah. And I and that is leads me to my next question, because there is a narrative in, in some spaces, in some African-American spaces that say black people idolize the Bible and spend too much energy looking at this book when God is bigger than the book. And I get the sentiment because God yes. is bigger than the Bible. But the the underlining thing yeah. is that could be subversively and subversively. Yeah, I think I, I think I'm that, not saying the word right, but it it could be an attempt for some people may process that and think that the Bible is 
while it's helpful, because it has been used in such destructive ways, then we shouldn't yeah. put as much hope and trust in it or idolize it uh, or hold it to the place that we hold it. Yeah. As so what, what I, that's what I was trying to get at earlier. Mm-hmm. People who trust in the scriptures understand that God is bigger than the scriptures. Mm-hmm. But we're saying that God comes to us reliably through the Bible. So a trust in the scriptures is a manifestation of our trust in God. Mm-hmm. And we're not collapsing God into the Bible. Of course, God is bigger than the Bible. God is bigger than he created the world. Of course, he created the people who wrote the scripture. So in no sense, the Bible, God is bigger than the Bible. But that's not the issue, right? That's the way of avoiding the issue. The issue is whether or not God communicates to us reliably through the scriptures. And the answer to that question is I want to say yes. And, and, and the issue is, is probably more important than we want to give it credit for. Because historically, let me do theology, then we'll come back. Historically, there have been three kind of central parts of places where we um, we get truth. We say we get truth from Scripture. We get truth, truth from tradition, the things that Christians have always believed across time and across culture. And we get um, truth from reason, the, the way that we reason for ourselves. And so we don't believe in, like, the Bible alone. We just say the Bible is the, is the prime authority. The Bible trumps like tradition sometimes tradition is wrong sometimes our reasoning is wrong and so when we talk about like trusting in the scriptures we're saying that when it comes to decision making i believe that god in his wisdom has given us text that when read in community can shape who we are and the kind of people we're supposed to be now the thing that makes this even more i guess important is the, is this issue a lot of times people who who will say God is bigger than the Bible or whatever, which is true, but kind of an inadequate way of putting it. They then want to posit another kind of authority, right? Mm -hmm. That we know, like in our generation, our culture, our context, we know better than these texts. We've kind of progressed Mm -hmm. beyond this. But I just want to, I just want to like pull the receipts across history of what happens when communities have said to black people, trust us rather than trust God's word. Mm -hmm. You have the eugenics movement, and this is this is in progressive spaces, right? White progressive spaces that were that were kind of post scripture were the ones who were at the forefront of eugenics and other kinds of racist ideas that they got from science or from the culture. And when these things like eugenics and um, anti-black racism were being were being propagated by progressive strands in in Western culture, it was black people who said, "No, no, no." I don't care what you say about who I am. It's what God says about who I am. And so there has to be, to my mind, something outside of the culture that critiques the culture. Because the social-cultural consensus doesn't always benefit black people. It doesn't always benefit the oppressed. We need to keep in mind, and this is what I'm talking about, the current socio-political consensus now is the one that establishes the inequalities that we experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Where is this place that has created this utopia for black people that now I'm almost listening to y'all in the South, in the Northeast, in the West? So if we live in a society that is right now oppressive to people and that society has not actually been able to establish justice or equality, but they think that they've progressed to a certain place that they can tell the people of God how we ought to live, I want to say no. Right. What was it that, that, that pushed the people of the civil rights movement up against the consensus of the day. We says we don't care about your consensus. God tells us who we are. But beyond that, we need to understand that we are a people who are under authority. That the problem that exists in the world is not simply external to us. It is internal to us. Like we harm people. And what and part of what it means to be someone who submits to the authority of scripture is that we want to leave space for God to not to, to tell us where we need to be reformed, mm-hmm. where we need to be able to be, be changed. And so I think that one way of talking about God, God is, um, is um, bigger than the Bible is true. And that's a, a fine statement to make as long as we don't use that to put a heightened confidence in our own wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that part of what it means to be a Christian is to live in this tension. We have tradition. We have the things that Christians have always believed. But sometimes that tradition gets it wrong. 
How do we determine when their tradition gets it wrong? It's when the collective wisdom of the people of God says that we've gotten these texts and interpret them poorly. Let's read them better to be faithful Christians. And so we, we don't just live, the Bible says it, and therefore I do it. We say, we read the Bible in conversation with what Christians have believed across time and in culture, while keeping a mind to what the Spirit is saying in our day. And through that sense, that kind of tension, I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable living as a Christian saying, I am doing the best that I can to, to continuing what I was taught, to continually analyze what I was taught by Scripture and trust that the Spirit that led the people in the past can lead us today. I really believe that trusting solely in our own wisdom can lead us to places that, that, that aren't always helpful. And this, this might be like a, um, a silly analogy, and I'm not trying to be flippant at all. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that seemed good to us when we were in high school, and we thought that we were wise. With a little time and experience, even some outfits, like some pictures y'all don't post on Throwback Thursdays because it was a mess back in the day. I grew up in the 90s. We had the big T-shirts, and it was a mess. With wisdom, we look and say that wasn't the move. And so I want to say that part of what it means to trust in the Scriptures is trusting in God's wisdom that may not be evident to us in the moment, but it's been useful to other people, and it's useful today. Um, and I think it can be useful to us in the future. I can say some more, but um, I, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you jump in. No, that was <clears throat> that was extremely helpful. What What other things would you add? There's this thing, and I, and I'm talking about this. I'm going to keep saying it because I don't think that people got what I was saying when I talked about this in like um, the last crazy conversations. But it's something that's captured my imagination uh, a lot over the last year. And I'm going to keep talking about it until maybe I, I can say it better. When people talk about um, the authority of Scripture and um, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to kind of trust in the Bible, we really are asking the question, um, Lisa, is whether or not the Bible can produce an ethical life. Right? Whether or not reading these texts can produce a good and just person or reading and applying these texts will make you a bad person. That's what we're really getting into. The Bible, read, taking the Bible seriously leads to you becoming hateful or intolerant or cruel or whatever. And one of the things I keep thinking about is, is the life of Jesus. And, 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 and there's a distinction that I want to make here. I am not simply saying Jesus believed the Bible, therefore you believe the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it is clear that if you look at Jesus's life, he was shaped by the scriptures. That his, that, that his ministry and the things that he did were shaped by his reading of the Bible, right? And so when you look at Jesus's life, the, the miracles that he performed, the way that he treated people, the way that he treated women, the way that he treated other people, that way of life that Jesus lived came from his reading of the scriptures, so Jesus' life is evidence of what a trust in the Scriptures, in particular the Old Testament, that has all the stuff that we have problems with, right? That Jesus' life is a picture of what a robust trust in God and the confidence in Scriptures can produce. In other words, I don't have to worry that trusting in the Scriptures is going to lead me to some kind of like crazy way of being in the world because Jesus shows me what happens when you trust in those Scriptures and live in light of them. And Jesus, by all accounts, was good, compassionate, kind, and just, and loving. Jesus, then, is a proof of comp proof of context, right? A, a proof of concept. What happens when these texts guide my life? Well, when, when these texts guide my life as an authority, as an authority, read Rightly, I look like Jesus. So I don't have to go and fear that if I trust in these texts, I'm going to end up, you know, in some kind of crazy land of hatred. And that if, if my reading of scripture makes me less like Christ, then I know that I've read them incorrectly. So when Jesus read the entirety of the Old Testament, what did he conclude? What were the central themes? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus said, when I look at the Bible... And I want to announce what I am as a summary of what the Bible means. It is God's concern for the poor. But not just mm -hmm. that, Lisa. When Jesus says, well, what does it mean to follow God? There's an emphasis on the holiness of life, the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. God doesn't just say society is messed up. Mm -hmm. God says that I can be made new as well. 
such that holiness and justice aren't enemies but friends. So Jesus shows us in his own ministry and his teachings what trust in the scriptures produces. And so if until y'all can produce, until somebody can produce a life better than Jesus, then I'm going to keep doing what he's doing because that's what captures my imagination. It doesn't mean he's the only person who I admire. I admire James, some of the things James Baldwin said. I admire some of the things Martin Luther King said. I admire some of the things the Sojourner Truth did. But all of those people pale in comparison to the person of Christ, someone who compels my imagination. And mm-hmm. I can't say that I have developed a better way of reading scripture than that guy did. And he mm-hmm. followed, and, that, and those scriptures led him through his entire life. That's the last thing I want to say. Y'all might not be impressed by it, but I care about it. So there you go. No, that's really helpful. And you know what it made me think when you're talking about does following the scriptures produce, what kind of ethical life does it produce? And, yeah. and what, as, as you were saying that, I thought about the disciples and I thought yeah. the, about them following the word embodied. Yes. And I thought about the fact that, you know, I thought about Judas and then I thought about the rest of the disciples and Judas was following the word and still became a betrayer, uh, still was greedy. And so what, what we, what we, I think what that highlights for us is that someone can be following the word and looking at, at the scriptures for authority and still in some instances, their life not be completely transformed and produce yeah. hateful, problematic actions. And yeah, so, th- but that doesn't mean that something was wrong with Jesus. It was something was wrong with Judas. Do you, they, are you following they, what it, I'm saying? Yeah, what I'm saying, you, what, what I guess you're correct. And let me see if, if we're vibing here. Mm-hmm. I'm saying what the reading of scriptures can produce yeah, no, it, I'm saying it, I'm trying it, to give a counter argument yeah. for those yeah, what who I'm saying, are. You're saying, yeah. you're saying that it doesn't always produce that. And I think you're exactly right. That it's possible to to claim that the Bible is the word of God and that mm-hmm. it's the authority. It's the inspired everything. You can put every inerrant, infallible, and in, incorruptible, in, in and disputable. You can put all that in there and still be yeah. trifling. Yeah. And still, and I think that's what, I think that's what really damages people. And I want to say. Um, I wish they could read. Uh, y'all should read um, the chapter when it comes out in September. It's called Call and Response. Um, and it's about this It's about this very issue. Because I grew up in a context where I saw the the brokenness of, of, of religion, especially in black church spaces. Mm-hmm. Where people who said one thing on Sunday were doing something else during the course of the week. Mm-hmm. And I understand, and I don't want to be flipping, and I hope it didn't come across this way. I understand the people who say, these are supposed to be God's people. And the very people who told me to trust in these words wouldn't live an entirely different life. Mm-hmm. And that sense of cognitive dissonance is what sends them spiraling spiritually. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of um, my own spiritual journey is that I had to deal with that at, at a young age. I've never, mm-hmm. I never actually had the opportunity to have an idealistic picture of Christians that was then spoiled. My mm-hmm. coming, to, my coming to faith, was in a context of deep hypocrisy and confusion, mm-hmm. and I've just maybe taken a lot of comfort from my the the the, the early black Christians mm-hmm. because they had the same thing. I, I say this a lot, is that black Christians have the advantage of never having believed the propaganda. Mm-hmm. Because when we became Christians, America was already tripping. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we had to wrestle with um, that, that sense of, of, of discomfort from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I think the people who didn't have that experience, who had an idealistic or positive view of the church, and then saw its failures, it's kind of, it can be hard to, to reconcile those things. And mm-hmm. I, I don't want to I don't want to completely absolve. I mean, Jesus talks about this. If any of you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better if a millstone was tossed by, uh, uh, tied around your neck and you're tossed into the sea. Mm-hmm. And so the people who've done this to people, whose manner of life ha- has has distorted the witness of the gospel, Jesus is gonna have a word for you when the time comes. Mm-hmm. He says it in the Bible. But I also want to say. I'm sorry that this happened to you. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry the people that you that you put your faith in deeply disappointed you. Even people who might have taught you to trust in the Bible themselves weren't trustworthy. But I want I want to hope that there is a faith on the other side of that suffering. Mm-hmm. That you that you're able to find the God who they were pointing to, even if the person who was pointing to them was ultimately um, broken in some real way. Mm-hmm. No, that's super, super helpful. Uh, I think important to to note for our audience who are really wrestling with this uh, because it is a, a common uh, frustration. So I'm Man, glad I, that you, yeah, that you, that you, that you said that. Um, I remember, I remember when I first went, like when I first went into ministry, mm-hmm. Like nobody really believed it in my in in my in my hometown context because they had seen so much hypocrisy, mm-hmm. and so people were skeptical. And I understand that skepticism. And maybe one of the reasons why I I, I think that the work of Jude three is so um, important is I always thought it was my call in my ministry to talk to people who've seen the real. Mm-hmm. Right, and so maybe my entire way of being is saying, "Listen, I was there," and when I tell y'all I was there, I'm saying I've seen some stuff, um, and that 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 trauma like shaped my understanding of what I'm trying to do, and so hopefully I never sound in my own when I get passionate too triumphalistic, because it's not mm-hmm. that it's like I'm I had this rosy experience of Christianity. Um, but I did have, um, in the midst of that brokenness, I kind of, I found more. And, and even now, like I have friends of mine who every time a pastor does something, they, it's like, they got me on speed dial. Like, look at this pastor, look at, look at his house, look at his church, look at it. He got caught cheating. And so I, I have like an endless stream of anytime somebody in the church, anyway, does something reckless, people text me. Mm-hmm. And so I understand that like there is, um, that reality, but I do want to say this, and maybe this this might be um, important, Lisa. It's a lot of non-trifling pastors out there too, right? We get we get a picture of the people who make a lot of money, who have these big churches and these big houses. But if I don't know about how y'all do it in Jacksonville, if you drive around Huntsville, there's a lot of these churches that are like down bad financially. These mm-hmm. pastors aren't making a lot of money. They're working two or three jobs. They're just preaching the gospel faithfully because they feel called to it. And some pastors are, who are in large churches have faithful ministries from the beginning to the end. They love their they love their spouse. They love their kids. And they do the best that they can. They flaw like anybody else. But I do think it's important to ask is, if there are 100, church, 100 pastors in your city, and you know about two of them who's trifling, what about the other 98? Mm-hmm. Or the other 95 or the other 90, whatever the number is. And their testimony matters as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important because people judge the faith based off people they see on TV. <clears throat> when in reality, most churches are small, less than 70 people, pastor by, yes. by vocational who has to get their children ready in the morning, make sure their kids go to school, be a a faithful spouse, uh, go to Lisa, work 40, 40 hours a week, and then counsel people, do funerals on the weekends. Their whole seven days, they have no break because they're working full-time for the church and full-time at a secular Here, job plus family. Here's something for you to do for um, the Jew 3. You should probably do some polls, put it on God's internet, and say, mm-hmm. what's the average size of a church in America? A, even put a black church. And see how many people actually put 70... 500 or whatever. And they say, what's the average salary of a pastor in America? And put the numbers down. And see what people actually say. I would say that most people think, of, when they think of Christianity, they think of mega churches with huge budgets. I'm not shading mega churches. I don't think they're, I'm not saying they're all inherently bad. I'm saying the perception of Christianity as being a mega, like the, most pastors leading mega churches and making tons of money, is simply demonstrably false. So put it up there. This is like the the you can go viral on the memes because you know all the broke pastors. We are they all gonna retweet it. I told you we had no money. <laughs> and so uh, uh, just put it up there. And I think it would be a blessing to people to kind of really reorient their picture as to what it actually means to be in ministry. Because I don't I know a lot of people who were in seminary when I was there, and ain't none of them ain't none of them rich. 
Mm-hmm. So um, there you go. But yeah. one of them got a little bit of money, but he went sideways. That's the question for another day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to put his name on there and don't Google it. Leave it alone. Let him live. <laughs> so Esau, uh, tell our audience what you said you had the, you had two books that are out or one is about to come out and then the one three about out. Lent. Three out. Uh, three is out. Reading While okay. Black um, was my first book, my second book. I have four books out total. First one is called Sharing in the Son's Inheritance. It's probably, if you want to get that one, it's on Kindle. It's my dissertation. It's about Galatians. The second book is called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And that's me really um, pouring out my heart to say, this is the way that I was taught to read the scriptures. And in black spaces, the Bible has functioned as a source of hope for oppressed people in the past, and it can't do so today. And so that book came out in 2020. And then um, in 2021-ish, I forget when I um, did the second, I wrote a children's book. I have a daughter. And so it's called Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's about um, what God says about um about um, our ethnic identity and how God loves um, us for who we are. And it's about my daughter coming to grips with, well, the fictional version of my daughter coming to grips with her, with her black hair. There's a book called Lent that is out now that helps people to understand the season of Lent. For y'all non-liturgical people, you can pick that up. And the book that's coming out in September is called um, How Far to the Promised Land, uh, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. And it's really like, if you want to talk about a prequel, it's like how did... How did um, the faith of reading while black get passed down from my ancestors up to now? And it's the story of kind of um, the experiences of my family. Because a lot of times when people think about like stories of black success, they tell the story of people who grew up in poverty and who worked hard and then who kind of made it. And in that story, it kind of ignores the people who actually shaped me. So it's not just a story of what I did. It's a story of all the black people around me. So it's kind of a Northwest Huntsville stand-up moment if anybody from that region of the world. So hopefully that'll bless people. And that's coming out in September. You can pre-order that, How Far to the Promised Land, on um, any place where you get books. And pre-ordering always helps because I don't know about the algorithms. It does something. <laughs> well, how can you get it? Uh, sorry, this, this is random. 2024, I'm, I'm dropping stuff. I got stuff that's coming. 2024, um, the Children's Bible is going to come out. Um, called God's Colorful Kingdom. It's going to be for anybody who wants to look at God's vision for justice and multi-ethnicity in the Bible. And then the back end of 2024, maybe actually the middle part of 2024, New Testament in Color is finally going to drop um, a multi-ethnic commentary um, on the Bible. So all of that's going to happen um, in 2023, 2024. We're going to be, I'm, I'm hitting every every six months from 2023 up through 2025, there'll be another book. And I'm looking forward to people reading it. I hope it blesses them and encourages them in their faith. Yes, you are out here in these writing streets. So that is good. Yeah, I was quiet in 2022. I had my head down. I was cooking. But, like, it's all coming out um, in the next three to five years, stuff I've been working on since reading my black. Um, and if you, and if I get a little bit of time and I stop doing Jude 3 podcasts, I can finally <laughs> sit down and work on this real project I'm looking forward to digging into um, that's called Paul and Slavery. But that's not dropping until, like, 2026. Don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. It's coming, though. Awesome. Well, we look forward to to all of your works. How can people get in contact with you on social media? Um, you can go to, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Esau Macaulay, um, on Twitter and on Instagram. If you want to go to my website, EsauMacaulay.com, you can hit subscribe to the newsletter. Then you can find, um, anytime I release something. If you also just put into the New York Times, Esau Macaulay, you'll get my monthly column. As a matter of fact, Lisa, um, when is this coming out? Is this coming out Thursday? Yes. Oh, well, oh, I think that um, that day actually might be the day that the um, thing that I in- interviewed you about coming out. So you might see Lisa Fields quoted in the New York Times on Thursday, and you have to look then to see what that article is about. Awesome. Well, I'm excited about it and excited about all that God is doing in your life. 
Um, it has been a blessing to have you. And this is another episode of the G3 Project podcast in our Bible series. Um, remember here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Remember, we have our curriculum, Courageous Conversations, that's available at g3project.org. We also have the unspoken curriculum to go along with the unspoken film. You can get that at unspokenmovie.com. Remember, uh, you can become a monthly partner with us. Every gift helps equip in this goal. As I said last week, I'm in a, on the on in the campaign to raise $1.6 million this year for the G3 project. Uh, and so if you would like to come uh, become a partner, we want to give you the opportunity to partner with us doing that at g3project.org backslash donate. You can give, there's an option to give by mail or to give online. As I always say, every gift helps equip. We could not do what we do without the generous support of people like you. And we have merch, all of the things on the Jew 3 Project website. Uh, remember, if this episode has been a blessing for you, uh, share it with other people, rate, subscribe, all of those things for the podcast that helps us out. Uh, we appreciate it. Until next time, grace and peace and God bless. What's up, everyone? Lisa Fields here, and I'm so excited about our new curriculum, Courageous Conversations. You heard about our popular conference, Courageous Conversations, where we invite the leading pastors, thought leaders, and scholars from conservative and progressive backgrounds for conversations. But we not only want to have those conversations on stage at the conference, but we want you to have them in your everyday life. So we developed a curriculum for you to do just that. Courageous Conversations curriculum, the tools you need for the conversations and culture. You can get that today on Amazon or on our website at Jew3project.org. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.org. Com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.